You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello. Please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, wilder people induces they they just grow up so fast. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and I write haikus when I feel upset. And I'm Thomas Mariani, and I'm sorry, Adam, before I can continue the show, I have to stare off into the middle distance and hear the narrator who sounds like a slightly older version of me saying... I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but December of 2020 became the summer we truly became men. I'm glad you had that moment, though. <laughs> That's true. Every recording session, I technically have it. Um, <laughs> no one just hears it in the audience. Uh, but what they will hear is um, a guest of ours who has come back. This is his uh, third time on the show. We love having him on. He's the uh, teacher who's going to teach us to stay off of gangs and drugs as he puts his chair backwards and sits in front of us and raps. It's uh, Mr. Rafe Telsh of Have Not Seen This. Welcome back, Rafe. Thank you. I'd like to say more, but I'm busy smashing stuff out of anger here. Not your stuff, just my own stuff. I mean, you're capable of that and graffitiing and other things. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But welcome back. Obviously, whenever we have a guest come back, we send them like, hey, here's what we're doing for the schedule upcoming, and you really zeroed in on uh, coming-of-age films, which is our topic for this week, and now why this topic in particular? I, I don't know if your intro was a joke or not, but you know, I, I am a teacher, have been a teacher for a long time, and many of the years that I've taught, I've done coming of age stories as kind of something that I've taught. So the topic is something that's kind of near and dear to me, not only, you know, applicable to my own coming of age and films that I associate with that, but also, you know, watching my own students growing and coming of age and the films that I introduced them to and the stories that I introduced them to. So I was really curious as to what you guys were going to come up with as a good and bad pick for this topic. And boy, I I was not disappointed. (laughs) Very true. Would you, I guess, consider yourself more of an Edward James Olmos or Hilary Swank in the regard of influencing those kids? Well, you know, they used to call me Crazy Joe, but now they call me Batman, oh. so... Oh, you're that? No. Well, that mostly because I'm dressed up in a Batman costume, not because I actually carry a bat. That would be bad and would get me sued or something, but, you know. But that's what teaches those kids to stay off hard drugs, because Batman will get them if they do. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have had students in the past refer to me as, oh, Captain, my captain, and not prompted by me, so I'll take that. Oh, that's sweet. Are you are you one of those teachers who's like, you know, hey, kids, you know who else was a dope MC? Billy Shakespeare. Are you one of those guys? <laughs> no, that is not me. <laughs> <laughs> just, just making sure. I mean, Adam, we've been kind of circling doing this as a topic in general, as an idea, and I think we can, it's safe to say, like, we love a good coming-of-age movie, seeing, you know, these kids uh, go from childhood to adolescence in interesting ways. It's, it's, it's a compelling genre, no matter how old you are. 
No, it did definitely. And I, I think it's definitely one of the genres um, that lends itself to pretty much anybody being able to sort of project their own upbringing or experiences into it in one way or another. Uh, whether, you know, there's things that happen in it that are similar to things you've gone through, things that you might have wished you could have gone through or, you know, relates to friends, you know, or stories you've heard in the neighborhood or something like that. There's there's always sort of an identifiable moment or, you know, several sometimes in coming of age movies. Well, and plus there's a whole like looking forward and looking back thing you can do with especially the better ones. Like when I was a kid and I saw Stand By Me. I was like, oh, these mm. kids are great, and I can't wait to, like, do adventures like them. And then you look back on it when you're older, and you're just like, oh, God. <laughs> just the shit so I didn't want to remember, but also the shit that I really did at the same time. Um, there's there's a there's an interesting kind of way you can um, contextualize a good one. Yeah, and for you and me, it would be like Stand By Me or Goonies. For Rafe, it's like Mr. Holland's Opus or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's Charlie Chaplin's The Kid. <laughs> <laughs> oh god ouch <laughs> uh but you would generally agree with that kind of context reef of looking forward and back with a good one yeah and one of the things i've i've found really interesting and and it's actually a, something we'll talk about a little later i'm sure but a lot of the time as i've gotten older you know it's like well coming of age i came of age a while ago but a lot of these coming of age stories while it is focused on the adolescent or the young younger person uh, that process of coming of age has an impact on the adult figure as well. And I've I've started to find that really fascinating. Yeah, and it can be as diverse and wide-ranging, like Adam said. It can also give you, like, an interesting look into, especially a perspective you're not aware of. Something like, we covered on the show previously, Moonlight, where especially you just see this guy grow up from, like, childhood to adolescence to adulthood. You can see so much there that really uh, shows off. And, you know, when they're done badly, um, they can just kind of feel like, what are these kids doing dicking around? They make you feel so old. Damn wiener kids, get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and the other thing, too, you know, not to be that guy, not to be the, you know, well, as a parent, I don't want to be that guy. But, you know, I am a parent. And, you know, you tend to watch these movies, at least for me, in kind of a different light too as almost like a study of what to do and what not to do <laughs> as a parent with the children you know oh my god my kid might resent me and then go try to find a dead body down by some train tracks somewhere like you, you know you have no idea what the hell's going on rafe hit it on the head you know he he has been old for a long time Jeez, <laughs> that's what you're taking away from my this is, see adam didn't come of age he wasn't taught properly when it went from steam to a coal train, did that blow your mind? Meanwhile, Adam still has his Walkman, refuses to get oh, an MP3 yeah, player sure. of any kind. Dude, I don't even know how to use a computer, like, still to this day. The Wii is top technology for me. That's true. You don't see hear this audience, but every time we start the show, I have to be like, okay, Adam, then you push the on button, and then you go over to the Skype icon. <laughs> and then you call which me. Is weird, which is odd that he's able to tell me that if we're not on Skype. Oh, I have to send you a candy gram in order to get you to listen. Ah, right. And, and what's just really sad is Adam sitting by his radio every Saturday at 8 o'clock waiting to see when the podcast airs. So It's right after Little Orphan Annie, right, Thomas? <laughs> Next week on The Shadow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure. But we should start getting into uh, our picks, which if you're new to the show... Every week at the end of an episode, Adam and I pick a good and a bad feature based on some uh, suggestions we have um, from our own individual 
perspectives, and uh, we'll be talking about our bad pick first, which is Deuces Wild, which was Adam's pick, and then we'll be talking about my good pick, which was Hunt for the Wilder People. Uh, two very different ways of approaching coming of age, for sure. Um, and let's just get into our bad one now, Deuces Wild. It was the most important summer of my life. My brother Leon was a leader of a group called the Deuces. To me, that meant doing whatever it takes to protect the people on the block. What's the matter with you? There's been a truce on this block for three years. Did I tell you to break it? I want your permission to take him out. If this comes back to me in any way, I don't know you. Deuces Wild. So, uh, Deuces Wild is a movie that came out in 2002, May 3rd, 2002. Interestingly, it came out the same week as Spider-Man, which is probably why you don't remember it, because no one saw it, <laughs> except maybe an Adam. Yeah, I did. You said you saw this at the theater, did you, or what? Uh, yeah, I did. You were the one person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I used to go to the theater all the time, probably one or two weekends a month, and just see whatever the new releases were. And, uh, gotta be honest... This movie fucking sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the weird connection is both feature James Franco. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. He's, he's not in this one nearly as much. There are points where he just disappears from movies. I'm pretty sure just like, hey guys, I gotta go shoot Spider-Man now. I'm in like a good movie. <laughs> see y'all later. Yeah, I gotta go see the doctor to help him open my eyes. Um, <laughs> he's, he's a squinty bastard. No, it's... He goes to the clockwork door and jog doctor every day. <laughs> yeah, to open his Yes, yes. Uh, but, you know, he's probably the most recognizable actor in this, necessarily, despite there's a lot of young people who at the time might have been very popular. But, uh, Rafe, when I messaged you we were doing this movie, uh, you had a great line about the cast. Yeah, I hadn't heard of this movie, uh, so I looked it up, and I was like, wow, this is like a, a lot of people who never made it, and then um, James Franco. You said a who's who of who never went anywhere, basically. Right, that's it, yes. <laughs> Which is extremely <laughs> accurate, because you got Stephen Dorff, Frankie Muniz, in, like, second season of Malcolm in the Middle Territory, Balthazar Getty, Norman Reedus obviously had a bit of something, and Matt Dillon is sort of, like, the senior person of the group, anyway. Who kind of? But even Dillon on. has kind of disappeared from the spotlight now. Yeah, I mean, I would say at least, like, he is in more high-profile things than any of the other people who are still making things in this yes. cast. Uh, like, I think he, he, he switches off from, like, direct-to-video to things that might play festivals. <laughs> Steven Dorff is in an ultimate fighting movie coming out. You show some damn respect. Well, and there is also Norman Reedus, who obviously has had a huge paycheck role in recent years just staying on The Walking Dead. I mean, there's also, it, it's probably, we can't avoid talking about it, and it's kind of a bummer. This movie has a lot of tragedy circling around it, and the center of that is a Brad Renfro, who plays our second lead. Which, if you don't know, uh, he was like a young child actor, appeared like The Client, that was like his big kind of breakthrough as a child actor, and then kind of uh, after that appeared in some things, but especially around this time is sort of the beginning of his huge drug spiral, and eventually his passing in 2008. Um, and unfortunately, I think you can kind of see it. That's all I was thinking about, honestly, watching. was just like, man. This oh, yeah, doesn't absolutely. Yeah. yeah. He's he's so fried, this whole movie. It is a terrible performance. I, I, I mean, let's just be honest. It's of a piece with the cast, to be fair. I don't think he's alone. <laughs> no, he's not the worst. He is not the worst. Norman Reese. But no, it's, uh, it's a terrible performance, but you got to wonder how much of it is actually affected by outside sort of influences. 
Yeah. Not to say that Brad Rowe was ever a really capable actor, but this, yeah, it's it's sort of all over the screen there that he's uh, he might be going through some shit. I would argue he had a lot of promise when he was younger. It's just unfortunate like he didn't get a chance to really develop that after a certain point. Uh, but why don't you, uh, because as Ray kind of mentioned, uh, no one knows what the fuck this movie is. I had no idea <laughs> what this was when we did our picking last week, so why don't you give people sort of a brief plot synopsis of uh, Deuces Wild, Adam? All right. Picture this. <laughs> it's, it's well, dude. It's it's West Side Story, but with shitty uh, accents and terrible fighting. Like, I mean, that's, well, that's and to be also no Puerto Rican characters at all. It's a very white movie. Yeah, and yet some of them have Puerto Rican names. Like, it's really bizarre. and then Big Pussy's a priest. Like, what is happening here? Like, it's just it's it's a really fucking just sort of ramshackled copy and paste movie taken from all these sorts of like greaser gang movies. That's, that's literally what this is. It's, it's two rival gangs. One of them killed the other one's brother. The one's in love with the girl from the rival gang. It's just, it's hard to synopsize it because you've seen it a hundred times done better. So take anything you like out of West side story or, you know, fuck even Greece at this point. Well, I was thinking the whole time specifically of, like, the opening of Goodfellas and yeah. The Outsiders, but slightly Yeah, I was going to say yeah, yeah. Yep. And then just really dumb it down. And uh, there you got Deuces Wild. <laughs> very apt, very apt summation. Uh, Rafe, uh, we foisted this upon you, um, but what did you end up thinking of Deuces Wild? Well... As part of the theme of coming of age, this is not a coming of age film because the characters don't learn anything. They don't evolve. They don't really improve. Um, but as a cinematic you know, film, it's a mess. <laughs> the performances are really weak. About halfway through the movie, I was thinking the best thing in this film was Frankie Munez. And then he has a scene where he has to go get the main character from his girlfriend's and his girlfriend is half naked. And he has this terrible mugging look like he's supposed to be like trying to sneak a peek but it's done terribly so even frankie munez is not that great in it it holds so long on that beat it's really weird <laughs> it's so painful because it's so badly done um and, and then the juxtaposition of a film that's set in what is it the summer of 1958 i well, think well as we can tell from the narration it's like it was the summer of 1958 when i became a man <laughs> Yeah, and this this I mean you it's funny you mentioned Goodfellas and Outsiders because those were the first things that came to my mind. In fact, I, I even wrote in my notes that this was a Goodfellas like narration that floods the viewer with characters at the beginning. Um but the the nineteen fifty eight setting, but then the more contemporary, really heavy guitar riffs and stuff just was like what kind of a film are you trying to make here? And I I mean, I know the director had a background in music videos, and I think that's really apparent later on in the film when it gets just really kind of strangely shot because I guess they didn't have enough story to go, so they decided to get a little creative with their camera work. But uh, no, this was a mess. Oh, good Lord. There's two bits in particular that like follow each other in the final gang battle. Whereas like, there's yep. one bit where like um, they're about to like fight each other. Then it cuts to like a stagnant shot where nobody's there of this pier they're at. And then the characters fade in as they, like, lunge toward each other. And then, as I believe it's Norman Reese and Stephen Dorff are fighting, it suddenly goes really fast motion for no reason. It's like, what the fuck's happening? <laughs> and, and that's literally what I wrote down in my notes, is what the fuck is going on with this movie? 
Yeah, like it, I, it didn't make any sense at all because none of the movie had been that stylistic up to that point. And then suddenly, like the entire final rumble is is just slow motion shots of guys punching. I mean, it's not an action sequence; it's slow motion shots of guys punching and stabbing each other. Or bits like Norman Reedus coming toward the camera after he throws like a Molotov cocktail at a car, and then he's like, "Wait, wait," and then it explodes. <laughs> like once right. again, holding way too long on that beat for no reason. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, you, guys, so you guys didn't like it. Is that what we're saying? No, here? we're big like, fans. Top ten of the show we've ever done. <laughs> I, I, it's, th- there's one moment in particular that really stood out to me, Adam, and that yeah. is when Norman Reedus's character is out of jail and they're trying to establish they're back in charge of this block because all this fighting is going on over one city block. That's that's all yep. that's important to them is this one block, and they come, they they pull up and they start just trashing. They're smashing windows. And there's nobody on the street. So they're smashing up cars and they're smashing windows and they drag an old lady out of her car and beat her with their baseball bats. But it's done in a fashion that I felt like if Andy Samberg was making a comedy about gangster films, that same sequence would be in his movie. Oh, yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, it, no, this is this is just pure hogwash. That scene, if you put the old Benny Hill theme behind it, would totally make sense. <laughs> Like, honestly, they're beating her with bats and going, it's so bad. And then it's like the accents that everybody's trying to do. It's so crazy on the fucking ears. Hey, yo, Adam, what are you talking about? It was a really authentic Brooklyn Italiano. Hey, I felt like I was at a family reunion. Hey. Hey. <laughs> but Brad Redfro, he talks like this the whole, hey, Johnny, don't worry about it. You're like, why is you? What happened to him? <laughs> he's, got, he's got like Sylvester Stallone mouth. Um, it's 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 so bad. And none of the characters are likable or followable. And I would argue that it is absolutely a coming of age story. It's just not handled well at all. I, you I don't think it could care. be. I, yeah, I think it, no, it, it, it should be. It, it's what it's striving I, for, I would agree, but does not accomplish yeah. very well. Yeah, yeah, I yeah really no, it definitely don't... could be. The idea of it is kind of a cool idea. You know, this kid who grew up idolizing his brother, he's in this street gang, and all this violence erupts and happens, and people die. Yeah, and... I love the outsiders. <laughs> well, no, exactly. But you have seen it done well. It does. It can be done. Uh, this movie, it just not enough care was given into anything. No, uh, be it acting, script, the way it's shot, the way it looks, the continuity of the way it's shot, even the soundtrack slash score. You got piano beats from The Godfather, and then all of a sudden, CC Deville from Poison takes over <laughs> right. and starts right. playing hot licks. And you're like, "What the fuck is this?" I agree. It's so dis like just distracting and disorienting. Where I kind of love it for that too, because <laughs> like, it's so bad. Put, put the put the so brakes bad. on for a second, because Rafe, go ahead and sell why you feel it's not really a coming of age story, technically. Well, I just, I mean, you're right that that Bobby looks up to his brother and he idolizes him, and you know they've they've had a tragedy in their family in the past, but Bobby doesn't change in any way. He he's following his brother's orders at the beginning. He's a violent guy. He wants to get into fights. And the movie ends with him having gotten into a fight and he's just following his girlfriend's orders now. He's still not learned to think for himself or transcend this violence or anger or anything like that. 
Um, I, he just is, he's, he's a punk at the beginning. He's a punk at the end. He never changes. Down to when he literally commits the same horrible crime he did at the beginning of the movie, at the end of the movie. And yeah. Insinuating that he killed Matt Dillon, basically, in broad daylight, <laughs> with the yeah. cinder blocks falling and shit. It's just like, well, that, that was really when I became a man and murdered again. <laughs> Which literally is the last shot of the film. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you feel that this is kind of a like an interesting bad movie, then Adam, in your opinion? Uh, oh man, that might be stretching it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's interesting. I, I don't think I would ever say that Deuces Wild is interesting. It's just so bad on so many levels. I, I don't know, man. It's like watching, a, you know, when you hear about people on Fourth of July blowing their thumb up, and you're like, oh, what a fucking idiot. Like, it, it, you get that sort of, like, oh, man, this is so stupid, man. Like, you're getting schadenfreude out of the movie? Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Basically. No, it's, it's, I don't know, man. And the thing is, I've seen this more than once. I Like, I saw it at the theater. I've probably seen this movie five times. Those are brain cells you don't get back at them. <laughs> He's lost many. It's uh, fine. <laughs> I, there's so many gone. I'm k- literally killing some while we're talking. Um, it's... <laughs> There's something about it that I want to like so much. Granted, I should just watch The Outsiders over Deuces Wild every time I get the itch. But I've always sort of been fascinated by Steven Dorff. Obviously, the dude, when he wants to be good, can be really good. Like, check out True Detective and things like that. He is a decent actor when he wants to be good. Uh, same with Norman Reedus. I've always kind of been fascinated by him. I don't know if it's because of Boondock Saints or, or whatever it is. So I, I think those are might be the two reasons I watch it because I, sometimes I'll watch something that one of them's in and then it'll pop up, you know, you may also like or whatever. So I'll just end up watching it. I, I never really pay attention, but I will say it's a good movie to put on when you're doing something else. Put it on the Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah, you could just look up occasionally and go, what the fuck? And go back to, you know, whatever you're doing. When you're cutting your drugs with baking powder. Put out Deuces Wild in the back. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> I can't put into words how stupid this fucking movie is. Well, I, I will say what, what was interesting to me is like I sort of weirdly did. The, you mentioned the director briefly, Rafe. Um, I did a double feature of Scott Calvert, who, as you mentioned, was a music video director before this. He Most famously, he had done uh, the Parents Just Don't Understand video for Will Smith. Um, which was obviously like a big explosion for like Smith and obviously even hip hop to a certain extent with white MTV audiences. And I watched both this and his previous and unfortunately only other movie, Given He Committed Suicide um, a few years ago, um, Basketball Diaries, which I hadn't seen before, the Jim Carroll movie. Yeah. I think I have a lot of problems with that particular movie, but I would say it's at least a more interesting coming of age story in a similar fashion about like a kid who gets caught up in that case with drugs um, and ends up going uh, pretty far off the deep end. But it's weird given, like, that movie at least has a solid cast and pretty good performances from a bunch of young actors like DiCaprio and Wahlberg and a few other people. Um, and, yeah, this one just really went far more off the rails <laughs> by comparison. I, I do want to give uh, Matt Dillon a little bit of credit, though, um, because he is really doing his best Brando in his very first scene where he is trying to, you know, lay out why there's got to be peace and why there's not going to be a war and why they, they need to get along. And he He's very obviously doing a Brando guy godfather bit there and and he does it rather well he doesn't did any of the other scenes but in that one he's enjoyable i honestly say my favorite of the cast in that i think she's like at least the most competent one is i would argue a fruza bulk 
Esther of the Brad Renfro I love interest in that she's like doing as much of the work as she can in any scenes with him. Like she is trying her best to be like, oh, I'm this kind of like Bronx teenage gal who's just like moving in with my mother. By the way, played by Debbie Harry, which is another right? weird casting. Um, and she plays this, <laughs> yeah. the, the mom who has had some sort of vague like mental break where she plays Christmas music all year round. And that's like her bit. And thought she heard Santa up on the roof, even though they're in a, a middle apartment. Yeah. Yeah, she's like, she's like the mom and Joker. Like, it's the same idea. <laughs> Where you're like, yeah, there's something wrong with her. No, I, I agree. Fruza Balk is definitely sort of, in any of her scenes uh, with whoever she's with, sort of carrying in the weight uh, for the team. But again, that's like, that's picking a peanut out of a turd. It's still not a great performance, but in comparison, uh, yeah, I, I think she sort of shines com- in comparison to the rest of the people, especially Brad Renfro. Yeah, especially because they don't have any romantic chemistry. Like, there's that weird scene where, like, he she goes to the restaurant with her friends, and he's already over there eating a the pizza, and that one guy's just like, hey, she's hot. Oh, get behind this slice of pizza! Oh! Can't believe it! Um, and then he goes over to her and has this weird, like, it's supposed to be like an awkward... Thing where he's being like really aggressive toward her and she's like get the fuck away from me what are you talking about and then she leaves and she's like i don't know he's kind of cute <laughs> like, what? what the fuck well again the, the, <laughs> the there was zero attention paid to anything and it's like the script the dialogue everything the character development it, it, it literally is lacking in all sort of departments um now as far as stand-up performances I, again this might be a little biased because I, I think Stephen Dorff is fine in this movie. It works for him to be sort of the tougher, older brother that the one would look up to because he's kind of good looking. He does look like he could kick some ass, you know, things like that. It makes sense to me why all these fucking kids would follow him. But again, that's not saying a whole lot. I would argue he's the same sort of neutral position I find Dorff to be in in most movies, pretty much. Uh, like Switzerland. He's Switzerland. <laughs> sure, yes, he's the Switzerland of the movie. Yes, everyone comes to him as sort of a neutral ground. I mean, like, he just feels, honestly, like, anytime I see him in anything, he just feels kind of just like, oh, I'm here, and I'm a prop. I'm not a badly designed prop, but I'm still kind of a prop here just to lift up the movie as a very literal physical support, as opposed to anything else. Like, honestly, I think the only times I've really dug him were, like, when he was a kid in The Gate and Blade. Like, that's it. <laughs> Leatherface, yeah. I think he was pretty good in. I thought he was right. pretty good in True Detective. He's really good. What was uh, the Cold Creek Manor or something? Wasn't that him? Yeah. He, he was pretty good in that one. I got to give him that one, too. That one. So Thomas can eat a dick. That's true, right? <laughs> you spotlighted three other performances in his 30-year career. Good point. <laughs> Checkmate, <laughs> sir. I concede to gotcha. your victory. What about <laughs> Cecil B. Demented? Uh... <laughs> Adam did bring up Vincent Pastore appearing in this, who was most notably uh, Big Pussy in uh, The Sopranos. Uh, but he didn't mention that Drea De Matteo, who plays uh, oh. Stephen Dorff's love interest, is also in this from The Sopranos. I always found her kind of one of the weaker actors on The Sopranos, and that kind of sets the gate for this whole film. Yeah, especially yes, when her absolutely. character is put through like a really bad ringer, like the most like offensive stuff with her character. Just like, hey, why don't we get married? Whatever. I'm not going to get married to you. I'm Steven Dorff. And then later on, she gets like implied sexually molested, basically, as like a, a plot point. It's like, oh, what a great use of this female character. How wonderful. Yeah. It's, I don't know. And then also, like, I can't really judge Sopranos comparison because mainly um, I'm an Italian who has never seen an episode of Sopranos. 
which is very odd for people who have literally come up to me and said, Thomas, I'm sorry, I haven't seen The Sopranos. I feel like every time I come on this show, I have to take your Italian card away from you. (laughs) (laughs) I have so many of these cards, I'm just getting them lost all the time. (laughs) He's also never uh, owned a little grocery store that also serves fresh deli meats. It might be a front for the mob as well. He's he's never into that. It's my uh, gentleman's uh, club of sorts. Yes, that's what this is. Hey, go ahead. Pick out some comic books and a loaf of bread and some milk for your ma. Hey! (laughs) (laughs) A boy on her tab is fine. Once again, how wonderful is it that we're clearly just diverging away from Deuces Wild? (laughs) Because this is just one of the more, like, forgettable ones I think we've ever done for the show. Like, this is one kind of like Legend of Chun-Li... Or some of the other bad ones where in about yeah. six months, like, we will not remember anything about this movie. You might, as the biggest Deuces Wild fan. Yeah, that's ever, your card ever. that you have. No, that's yeah. why he keeps rewatching it over again. He doesn't remember from time to time that he's already seen it. It's like Memento, but it's he has tattoos of Deuces Wild scenes all over his person. <laughs> well, that's right. It's, it, I agree. It, it's not the worst movie we've watched for the show by any means, but it is ultimately going to be in the sort of who cares sort of category like yeah, i'm never gonna watch it again who gives a shit i mean i'll watch it again watch <laughs> sure it <laughs> to watch it every week like hey thomas have you seen deuces wild <laughs> remember sam jenkins thomas is gonna have to take a polaroid of himself with the deuces wild movie on tv so that he can show it to adam every time look if anything that proves oh, i'm italian because i'm his joe pantoliano i can be that <laughs> You made up Deuces oh, yeah. Wild this whole time. You know what? I know it's fake, but when I bite into it, it'll be juicy. And the like... <laughs> Deuces Wild is crap. That's my final thought. Um, I mean, uh, that's a good final thought. Rafe, do you have any final thoughts about Deuces Wild? Um, it opens with that Goodfellas-like narration, and it ends with a huge fight where you can't tell where, who anybody is because they all have dark hair and are in leather jackets. <laughs> And they're all the exact same shade of pale, where it's like yes, a little exactly. bit of Italian and nothing else. Look, it's a guy stabbing another guy. It's a guy punching another guy. I don't know who's winning or losing, but I never really got their names at the beginning of the movie, so I'm okay with that. You're winning as the viewer. You're winning. I won when I turned off the movie. <laughs> very true, very true. Um, and I mean, I agree with these sentiments here. I will say we didn't talk about it much. But the sort of weird ending of, like, before we get the cinder block thing, but after the fight, the whole, like, this movie is so desperate, it has to pull out the twist card of Dorf getting shot, like, right near the end. And it wants you to feel emotionally invested, but you really can't possibly be. No, because it means the whole movie was for nothing! <laughs> right, it's a, it's a really cheap-ass excuse to kind of end the movie. Honestly, like, the most fun I would have is just spotting weird people that show up. They're like, oh, yeah, he was kind of a thing in the early 2000s. Like, we even mentioned, randomly, when they're like, there's a whole scene where uh, Steven Dorff busts through with his car through a place as a bunch of guys are playing poker. One of them is just Johnny Knoxville, like, during yeah. Height of Jackass. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, he, this, was, this was the same year as, like, Men in Black 2, where they were like, could he be an actor? And they all learned, no. No, we can't. Be. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, it, it's just it's random people pop up like that, or just other odd moments like the weird music video stuff that occasionally happens, or even like there's the other bit, probably the, the funniest bad bit to me, where in the middle of the fight, like the big sort of like ending bit of the fight is Frankie Venus comes out of nowhere and it's just like, hey, Stephen Dorff, here's a pipe. 
And then he fucking smashes Norman Reedus' head in. And it's like, hey, I'm, you did that for me. I'm not going to forget about it in the two seconds I have left before I get shot <laughs> at the end of this movie. Just random stuff like that that proves, as Adam kind of mentioned, it's a very weird movie that it feels very cobbled together. In retrospect, I, I think they should do a sequel to this movie that now that Frankie Muniz has grown up, I think they should do a, a movie about Scooch and, and, you know, what happened in the neighborhood afterwards. <laughs> Scooch is wild. <laughs> the movie everyone knows. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is forgotten and for good reason. Not very good. But uh, before we get to our good feature, here's an ad for a pretty good ESO show you can queue up right after ours. Check out what's been going on with the Pop Culture Cosmo Show and the PCC Multiverse. People are just losing their minds trying to consume Marvel products right now, and I don't blame them. This is some of the best entertainment you can get on TV and big screen right now. If something's going to be successful or not, they look at the mentions, they look at the likes, they look at the retweets and the tweets and the subtweets and the tweet tweets, and they look at all of that to say, okay, this is actually going to garner a lot of attention. Catch our shows on Worldwide Radio seven days a week and right here on the ESO Network. All right, now let's get into our good feature, Hunt for the Wilder People. Hector Faulkner and Richard Baker have been missing now for six weeks. Faulkner is Caucasian. Well, they got that wrong because you're obviously white. $10,000 to anyone who can capture them, dead or alive. Oh, alive. They should be alive. So what do we do now? We run. Oh, no. No, we don't need to run. Oh, yeah. This is fast walk. Yeah. <sighs> so Hunt for the Wilder People is directed and written by uh, Taika Waititi, who you might know as the What We Do in the Shadows or Thor guy. Uh, but this is a movie he made in 2016. This was after he did What We Do in the Shadows, but right before uh, his really um, impressive work in Thor Ragnarok. And uh, it's a movie that's basically about... Um, this young boy, played by Julian Dennison, who you might know, speaking of comic book movies, from Deadpool 2, when he briefly appeared there, sort of like the MacGuffin of that movie. And in here, he plays a troubled youth, put around from foster home to foster home, and he ends up in his last-ditch effort in the middle of New Zealand to, like, have some kind of family before he goes to juvie. He ends up with this couple, um, who are played by Sam Neill and Rima Tawieta, um, and uh, they live in, like, the middle of nowhere, and they have, like, a farm, and there's not really much to do there for him, uh, but he grows a shining especially to uh, the Bella, the mother surrogate character, um, who dies very tragically early on in the movie, and from there he ends up trying to escape from a Sam Neill who wants to bring him back to the authorities, and it ends up becoming this chase where he follows after Julian Dennison, and they become sort of uh, missing persons that turn into outlaws in New Zealand, and um, it's this cute little coming-of-age story basically for Julian Dennison in that way. And uh, I really love this movie. I would say, even with as impressive as what TD's work has been as a director and writer, I would say this is my favorite movie of his, because I think it balances a lot of his comedic stuff and his craft as a filmmaker and a lot of other uh, just, like, fun bits and pieces with a real emotional core that I feel like is in some of his movies, but feels the strongest here to me. But I'm curious to hear from uh, our other people on the dais here. Uh, Rafe, had you seen this before? I had not seen this one. Um, in fact, I think I'm down to Eagle versus Shark is the only Taika Waititi movie I have not seen at this point because it was this one and that. Same. Looking over his filmography because I've seen 
he, you know, everything else he's done. And he loves to do coming of age as a theme. Most recently, his film was Jojo Rabbit, which was definitely a coming of age story. He has another movie he made early in his career called Boy, which is a coming of age story. One could argue that Thor Ragnarok is a kind of coming of age story uh, in some capacity, definitely more than deuces wild um but i hadn't seen this and boy i loved it as you said it captures why tt's storytelling and filmmaking really well that if you like the other movies he's done you're probably going to like his approach to this one because it's that nice mix of serious uh and at the same time very funny oddball quirky moments thrown in yes and adam we've talked about um, our mutual appreciation for Watiti when we did Thor Ragnarok a while ago on the show. Um, and I don't believe you had seen this one, though. And uh, what were your thoughts on it? That is correct. I had not seen this one. Uh, in fact, this is the only one that I hadn't seen. I have seen Eagle vs. Shark and things like that because I'm was a I'm a big Flight of the Concords fan. So I, I definitely went and checked that out. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I watched it uh, today, actually, uh, this afternoon with uh, my wife and my daughter. And my daughter actually sat there and watched the whole thing, too, which is crazy because she's only five. Uh, she, but she thought the accents were funny. But uh, <laughs> I think it's it's an absolutely uh, damn near a perfect movie. I don't think it's a perfect film, but it's damn close. Uh, it's It's really sort of sweet at its core. It's a really, really sweet sort of relationship that blossoms between you know, Sam Neill and, and Julian Dennison. And it's not overtly comedic in tone, but it's just funny. It's just a funny movie. There's so many funny things that happen. Like, I'm the Terminator. I'm the Terminator. No, you're like Sarah Connor. And, and with Taika Waititi as the priest was so funny. That's a laugh out loud moment too. <laughs> uh, but ultimately, no, it's, it's just a really sort of sweet, sweet coming of age story. Not just about a 13-year-old boy, but a 67-year-old man as well. Oh, yeah. I, I, as much as, like, we're big we're big Sam Neill stands on the show. But oh. I, I would argue this might be my favorite performance of his. It's in my top three. Uh, I, I'd put this, the first Jurassic Park, and in the Mouth of Madness right up there. Well, those are the top three, yes, of course. That's the correct answer. Yeah. But I would argue I'd slightly put this above as a performance, necessarily. Because he's going through so, like, many layers. It's like a dude who clearly, as you mentioned, hasn't grown up that much. He's very quiet and to himself and bitter, sort of about what's going on, especially after his wife dies. And I think just seeing him kind of grow along with Julian Dennison, that's kind of like a cliche in a lot of these movies, is, oh, you know what? The kid grows up, but really, the adult grows up with him. And I think this feels like the most sincere version of that, where you really do see like these two come become like a buddy pair that feels sort of invested. I've seen a lot of people say this, and it's kind of true, and it kind of might explain why I love this movie so much. But it feels kind of like a New Zealand sort of twist on an up. Because yeah. it's like this older gentleman and this young boy who are just going off on this adventure in the middle of New Zealand, which also another shadow. Like, they make a Lord of the Rings reference in this movie, but there are so many great shots of them like going around the New Zealand hills, and there's just, like, these giant helicopter shots that look massive in scope. I mean, and they're gorgeous shots, too. That's another thing yeah. about this movie. Some of the camera tricks and angles that are pulled off in this movie are absolutely breathtaking. It does a really good job of showing the scope of the scenery. You definitely get the idea, like, they are just in this giant, expansive forest area. And it's, it's quite breathtaking, uh, a lot of it. And uh, and then even when they do the camera shots for fun, 
you know, angles where he's looking at the girl and all of a sudden the light just shined up from behind and her hair is <laughs> yeah. blowing in the wind. It's really well done. This kid, this the, Julian Dennison, you know, I didn't know how I felt about him in Deadpool 2. But then after seeing this, you're like, oh, it's basically the same sort of kid. He's he's so endearing uh, in this movie that it, uh, obviously it made me like him in Deadpool 2 a little more. But he's he comes across as just such a mixed up lost kid in this movie to where like he doesn't have his own real identity he doesn't really know where he fits in he wants to fit in somewhere but everybody's constantly giving up on him uh it's it's really really quite a a wonderful performance especially from a child actor uh i was thoroughly thoroughly impressed yeah it's kind of a bummer that like he hasn't like he wasn't deadpool 2 but i don't think that really got him much attention and now he's like the villain in the christmas chronicles 2 which i tried i tried to watch today after this movie uh because my daughter was like oh let's watch a you know a christmas movie like okay so we put that on because i knew he was in it and uh i stopped it about at the eight minute mark not, not to get into another movie so much, but A, he's in it real quick, and now he's got a deep voice, which is a little odd, but clearly he doesn't really give a fuck. And then Ty Reese is in it, who has never been good, but he's even worse in this. Like, <laughs> well, it, it, let's let's steer this back to Hunt for the Wilder people, because I want to <laughs> ask Wraith in particular, um, what are your impressions on him as sort of like his big sort of breakout performance here? I, I don't know now. I kind of want to check out the Christmas Chronicles too. <laughs> um, his his performance here is is really solid. Uh, I did not expect I was going to like him at first. Like you know, the first like five, maybe even ten minutes of the movie, he doesn't say a word, and that made me a little nervous about about it. Um, but then once he finally does get to talking, um, the, the emotion that he shows is really solid, especially you know in his interactions with heck you know the the arguing over the word majestical which was the word you were looking for a few minutes ago adam to describe the scenery um <laughs> you know one of my favorite moments he's involved in it's obviously crafted by ytt but you know there's a montage when they're they're going back out into the woods and it's going to get cold and they're stealing gear to to build up supplies and he's moving away from this thug life gear that he had into an outfit that very strongly resembles Hex. And it's like you can see him kind of picking up some of his mannerisms and some of his thought process, even though he's still a little kid who arguably makes some really poor decisions over the course of the film. No, yeah, I, I love sort of his progression over the movie. But at the same time, even when he does start talking, I just love immediately how much, I agree, there's like a real earnestness to him that's really endearing, but also he has such great comedic timing. Like right yes. with like stuff like the, they were just like, oh, we got you this dog. What are you going to name it? Uh, Tupac. Like he talks about Tupac. Being... Psycho or Megatron or maybe Tupac. Tupac yeah. is named after my best friend. <laughs> uh, which I also like no offense to the late Mr. Shakur but Tupac is an adorable dog name in the Kiwi accent in yeah, particular okay. <laughs> I, one of my favorite uh, comedic bits too in the movie that was just so sweet is you know he runs away and then he, he wakes up and the, the dog's smelling him he's got his hood put all over his head he's covered in mud he looks and there's you know the, the mom or the wife character sitting there she's like oh I can't believe we found you you managed to get more than a hundred yards away from the house. <laughs> and you look at the house is right there. He's been gone all night. 
I think what's what's so interesting too about what TT's style in this too, you can tell like I think this became more pronounced as you got to like a JoJo rabbit, but you can tell this dude loves Wes Anderson. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like he's just replicating that style. It feels like he's kind of putting his own New Zealandy touch to it. The best example to me of that is there's a whole montage when it starts becoming winter. And they have, like, it's a weird, like, kaleidoscope thing almost, uh, or no, uh, like, a uh, one of those rotating, uh, kind of, like, uh, wheel things where it's just like, oh, here's them in this particular corner, and the shot keeps panning, yeah. and we see, like, everybody hunting after them and all this other stuff. It's such a great shot that has, like, a bit of Wes Anderson influence, but it feels almost very New Zealandy. You can tell that, like, he, uh, Watiti is, um, I, I might be pronouncing this incorrectly, but he's uh, of Maui descent like the Polynesian uh, race that naturally lives in New Zealand. And I love how this movie has so much of like, it's a, oh, they're like chasing after everybody, but it's a coming of age movie, all this other stuff. But it also feels very specifically New Zealand in a way few other movies are that aren't like Lord of the Rings. This is very much a Taika Waititi New Zealand film. And he clearly does sort of have an appreciation for Anderson. But like you said, it's, it's his sort of, the sense of humor and the, the pure lightheartedness of, Everything he's done, you tend to walk away from a YTD movie feeling good. He's definitely got his own definable style. May it be similar to other directors, but it's definitely his style. And this movie is no question. And that scene you mentioned of them in the trees in the winter, where, you know, it's it's the two of them, but then it's also the SWAT team. It's also the hunters. And it's also the one cop and the, the person who works for child services. That was so amazing. The tricks that were pulled off in that scene alone, uh, I mean, it was kind of like awe-inspiring a little bit, where I'm like, I can't believe that he pulled this off in this little movie, uh, surrounded by scenery. Like, where are you going to hide the fight? Like, it's just, it is just amazing. It was really, really well done. And by the way, the hunters, oh, so funny, too. There's a really great supporting cast, like you mentioned her, um, the sort of the person who's part of like the child services, Rachel House, who you might recognize as uh, she was Jeff Goldblum's right-hand uh, person in Thor Ragnarok, um, who oh. did the whole, like, the, the whole, um, uh, the, oh, we have the prison, the no, not, yeah, right, the melting stick, all that stuff, right. um, and she's phenomenal, too, especially just as she like, keeps hunting him down and is doing stuff like, no child left behind, no child left behind, <laughs> like, she keeps repeating oh. But I love uh, what one of the things I love about the movie is her progression of character where she starts out, you know, when we first see her and she's bringing the boy to the farm and, you know, she's very business. But as the movie progresses, she's going out of her mind when she does that news show performance where she literally repeats No Child Left Behind like four or five times because that's just that's the only speaking point she has at this point. And then towards the, the final conflict at the end of the movie, she's just she's gone so huge not the actress but the character has just become something like this monstrous like character you only see in like movies and video games and stuff she totally thinks she's like tommy lee jones from the fugitive in terms of hunting this kid down which is so great especially when she like tries to do like you have the right to remain silent and then uh, the cop that's with her the whole time oscar uh kigley who is great too was just like ah that's more of an american thing we don't really do that here (laughs) and and you're not a cop and you're not a cop (laughs) It's, it's so good. It has that great matter-of-fact sensibility, too, that Watiti usually does. And even includes, like, some people. Like, Watiti shows up in there with his whole speech and as a preacher about Doritos and all this other stuff. But also, um, Reese Darby showing up as Psycho Sam is, like, oh, yes. so fun. It's this weird character who you wouldn't think would fit in this movie, but he fits perfectly as this weird side man. You could put Reese Darby in anything and I'm in. 
I, he is he comes across as one of the most likable people no matter what he does and yeah he's come on pretend what did now we all got to do it or else they won't believe it what's the fastest way out of here jetpack yeah jetpack do you have a jetpack yeah all you got to do is fill out forms one form to fill out another god forbid you don't want to fill out forms anymore you got to fill out five forms <laughs> No, he's perfect. I love the banter between the cop and the child services lady. Like, it's just so well done, dude. The, the dialogue is so sharp. And especially for a movie that, like uh, Rafe mentioned earlier, the main lead doesn't barely say a word until 15 minutes to 20 minutes in the movie. And it, it's just so, they're, they're, everybody has a definable trait, definable characteristic. Not one character feels like they were a throwaway character just to move the plot along. Like, even Arima Tawiata, who only has about 15 minutes in the movie, and she, like, makes such a great impression. Where it's just, like, the, the weird thing where she tries to do the fat joke, and it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I probably shouldn't have done that. And then when she does, like, the cute little thing with the Casio keyboard, <laughs> when he's got his oh God. Right, it's so cute. Oh, so good. <laughs> But yeah, every character feels real. They all feel like they belong in this world. They have all are given attention to make them stand out in some way or the other, not to just blend into the scenery. It's pretty masterfully done as far as character development and character study. As I said at the beginning, this is pure Taika Waititi. You know, if you like his other movies, it's here. It, this is this is just excellently done. I don't know that it's my favorite Waititi movie, but it, it's definitely I'm glad I watched it. Yeah, I just feel like after this point, I've enjoyed, like, the, obviously the stuff he's done recently. Like, I really dig Thor Ragnarok a lot, and I like Jojo Rabbit, but I kind of feel like some of his charm is being a bit more diluted with more of his mainstream projects. It does kind of feel like this is going to be the moment I kind of look back to, like, this is what we do in the shadows, which is like, oh, I wish we could kind of go back to that. And I wish he could kind of do small things as he ends up getting bigger and bigger as a fucking you know, director. He's doing, like, a Star Wars thing and shit like that. I hope he can at least find some way to kind of go back to this point of this, or even, like, a boy, which you did on your show with a friend of the show, James Rodriguez, Rafe. Yes. And it's another great example. Like, it's a very cute, insulated production that really uh plays on his life is like smaller personality quirks but has a lot more emotion invested in it i hope he can like at some point go back to doing that that he will that's his bread and butter man that's what he's the best at i think he's gonna leave a pretty indentable mark on sort of the mainstream cinema but i think he's going to keep doing these little sort of character piece movies as well i i don't think we're going to lose any of that well, and I think that quirkiness is still in the mainstream stuff that he's doing. I mean, you look at, you know, a character like Korg in Thor Ragnarok, or you look at his performance in uh, Star Wars, you know, The Mandalorian. I think Hollywood is open to his sense of humor and is going to let him play around with it some. And I think that's a good thing. It's just he needs to find that balance between the the, the emotional and the humor like he has here. And I don't know that he's necessarily found that fully yet on a on a big budget scale. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a thing where, like, I, I hope that stays consistent, but at the same time, I think about, oh, he's doing some more Star Warsy things, and I'm like, are they going to Lord and Miller this motherfucker? Because they don't know <laughs> what the fuck to do with comedy in Star Wars, evidently? I don't know. I hope that isn't the case. Um, But, but yeah, I, I love it how, especially in here, it feels so earnest in a way that, like, in a lesser movie, it could come off as just like, oh, we're just being quirky for the sense of quirky, as, like, others, especially, like, people that have tried to whip, rip off what Wes Anderson have done. And it never feels like that, especially with the chemistry between those two and how, like, even the big moments have this kind of authentic, scrappy charm to them, like the fight that happens with the uh, 
Sam Neill and the various hunters that uh, is like such a shitty like <laughs> base level fight that's like so funny to see scrapping and then Julian Dennison like shooting off the rifle and saying shit just got real with the cocking it's so perfectly oh timed God. but it feels it totally in keeping with the characters oh, that that whole scene I love where he's actually telling them what's been happening but the way he's saying what's happening makes Sam Neill sound like a pervert you know, it, it's so funny, you know, and I had to do a lot of things, and I got soft hands. It was real hard at first, but I got used to it. I didn't like it, <laughs> but eventually it became okay, and I, I would just do it. <laughs> and you're like, oh, no! Like, the bit later on when Samuel says, like, why would you say that? Do you realize what that sounds like? And he takes a pause, like, oh! <laughs> like, he realizes yeah. it immediately. But also, I like, you can kind of see, like, some of the stuff he would do later, like, a Thor Ragnarok with some of, like, the bigger action beats in here at the same time. Like, the whole scene where Sam Neill and him fight the boar, which is equally tense and kind of funny in its own way. I love the way they use the, the boar in particular. It's clearly CG, but it doesn't feel that way. It feels perfectly integrated. They kill a dog. They kill yeah. a dog. Yeah, oh, that, and that's, that's where this one loses me a little bit. They killed one of the dogs, and that's not okay. But at least, at the very least, like I've seen that used so much more cheaply, and I feel like this me one too. does it Absolutely. in a more investing way. Like I totally like believe why that would happen over the course of this particular story, and especially how much that hurts Sam Neil when he ends up having to kill Anna Mercy. It's well, realistic. They, they've used these dogs to hunt boar before, so these these dogs don't know any better to not go after this big one. I mean, it, it's that would happen. It doesn't feel like. All right, let's kill the dog to get more emotion and, and make this more fucked up for Sam Neill. It, exactly. It feels like a, naturally this should have happened. Well, and even if it, if it was done to manipulate the audience, it, it's honest to the genre. I mean, killing a dog in a coming of age film, you know, you look at like where the red fern grows or old yeller. I mean, that's something that's done. I mean, there's a uh, young adult author who wrote a book called no more dead dogs because he got so tired of seeing that trope in coming of age stories fuck star of our previous movie frankie minas did my dog skip yeah see it's it's part of the genre so even if he had done it just to manipulate people it would be true to the type of story he was trying to tell he just does a better job with it here yeah it's not like the main focus like a my dog skip it's like an actual right. like part that really works for the story i mean let's be honest marley and me is kind of the the best example you know what i'm saying i mean that movie's a just just perfection that's right but... next to deuces wild on that shelf it's smiling at me deuces wild. <laughs> oh wow the dog's dead wow that's what my deuces wild was missing is owen wilson that would have made it yeah, owen wilson should have been yep i'm puerto rican wow but um, it's, it's, um, that's one thing that is tricky with a lot of coming age stories is sort of emotional manipulation uh where they can be so heavy-handed that it's obvious what they're trying to do all movies are trying to elicit a re an emotional response but some of them are real ham-fisted with it and this one never felt like we're going to build you up and break you down, build you up, break you down, build you up, break you down, just so you walk away and be like, oh, man, that movie made me feel stuff. It's just a natural sort of story. Uh, and ultimately, it, it is a 100% a feel-good story. Right down to the ending that, like, makes me cry. It's so beautiful. Son of a bitch, you motherfucker. <laughs> I'm sitting there, and I'm like, all right, well, what's going to happen? Like, wh where is this going? Like, at one point, I was like, okay, what is ultimately going to be the end game of this movie? Because there is, that's the only reason it's not a perfect movie for me, because it does get to the point where you're like, well, where is this headed? Like, uh, there's about a good 20-minute chunk where I'm like, 
okay, they've already met the hunters, he's met the girl, and yet we're still going. And here comes the Reese Darby character and everything. So it does feel like maybe there's a little too much meat on the bone, but by the end, you're like, yeah, that was all necessary. <laughs> like, I, I'm watching it, and my wife looks at me, and she's, her eyes are welled up, and I literally went, don't you fucking dare, don't you do it, don't you do I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> yep. It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. You know, uh, I do have a rule. Okay. I'll have to call you uncle. All right. And I also have a rule. Don't get to shoot me again. <laughs> <laughs> but even like right before that, when like Samuel is learning how to read, it's so like charming. And you like this whole thing that's been a background joke becomes an earnest part of the character trying to better himself. It's so, so fucking good. Caucasian? Well, obviously they can't see because you are clearly white. <laughs> <laughs> they think I'm a pervert. And Asian. <laughs> but but um, how do you feel that it kind of culminates, Rafe? Do you think it uh, works pretty well once we get to that, that final sort of tear-jerky moment? Oh, yeah. The the only issue I really have with this movie, and it's because it's a low you know a lower-budget film, is that they're allegedly out there for five or six months, and Sam Neill's beard never grows, and he never gets thinner, you know? And that's just, that's going to come with a low-budget film. You just kind of ignore that. But the climax of the film and the, the resolution emotionally is so well done. It doesn't feel manipulative. It feels true to the characters that have been developed over the course of this film. Um, and as I said, you know, with the earlier movie, you know, or uh, when we were doing the introduction, a good coming of age film is often about more than one person's coming of age. And this is certainly, you know, Sam Neill's character is evolving and coming of age as well. He's having to deal with this out of the blue tragedy, which I, I kind of feel like when that happens in the film, everything for like trying to manipulate the audience just goes out the window because they're they're hitting you with the unexpected. And I I loved it. I thought it was a fantastic film. Those sound like pretty good final thoughts, unless you have anything to add to that, Rafe. Uh, I'll add on, it was the best. It was the best, yes. Truly it was. Uh, but uh, Adam, your final thoughts on Hunt for the Willer People. I mean, I pretty much echo everything Rafe just said. Uh, the beauty of it is, like Thomas, you, you alluded to earlier as well, a lot of times that's a trope that's used. Like, uh, it's not just the kid who's learning how to be. It's the adults who's learning how to love and accept as well. And that is definitely the case here. But the smart thing they did is that they made, you know, the uncle character sort of a renegade lives by his own rules character already to where the, the wife is the only thing that ever grounded him. Uh, and once she passes, he, he immediately is like, well, I'm just going to go take off for a while. You know, like he, he has nothing there to ground him anymore. And ultimately uh, it's the kid that he finds it in again with with another person who has the same issues you know who's never really belonged anywhere never had sort of anyone look out for him except for this one person and it, it, it's done so well that it's the, basically the same character at 13 that is the same character at 67 and they sort of one goes forward one comes backward and they meet in the middle mm -hmm. uh it's 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 really expertly done and uh it packs an emotional punch but in a good way I, I think it's absolutely just a, a fantastic, fantastic movie. Yeah, it, like I said before, I think it's my favorite of Watiti's, which is saying a lot because he's done so much incredible stuff. 
Uh, but at the same, it's just because, like, I, I love What Would You in the Shadows, but it never has quite this emotional punch at the same time. Like, those are kind of neck and neck. But I think this one expertly really, like, gives us so much of, like, this emotional investment while mixing the comedy and even the beauty of the scenery that's going on all around it. And it feels so distinctly New Zealand in a way that, like, really this and boy feel in particular for Watiti's filmography. And I think it's, it's definitely one that I think got lost in the shuffle because people, like, discovered what we do in the shadows and then Thor Ragnarok was obviously such a huge hit and Jojo Rabbit got so much critical acclaim. But this one I felt kind of got lost unless it's, like, amongst, like, the critical sort of community who, like, was the reason why I was aware of this movie at all. And I, I hope more people kind of dig back in his filmography and discover stuff like this, or Boy, or some of his, like, more interesting, like, weirder things. Like Also, we didn't, no one really remembers this, but he was nominated for a Best Short Oscar ages before he ever was nominated for, like, and won for Jojo Rabbit, which is interesting. Like, that dude has been working for a while. And I think he does such an incredible job here of mixing all this stuff and when it shows, like, so much of, like, what would come later in his career, but at the same time, I think he never has quite gotten back to as much for me, which is why I say it's my favorite of his movies, amongst a lot of really good movies, and I hope more people discover it. As we're recording right now, it's, like, on Hulu and Netflix, hopefully it stays there into uh, the next month or so, because I would really encourage anybody to discover this, especially if you're a fan of his later work. Dude, it's been on Hulu for years. I don't think it's going anywhere. <laughs> Just sitting there. It's the one that like they can get because nobody, unfortunately, <laughs> is clamoring for the rights for it now. But that is the end of our discussion of our two films, and we'll be picking two other films for next episode at the very end of the show. Stay tuned for that. But first, we have some feedback to read. Because we ask all of you, usually about every Monday, about, hey, what are your favorite or least favorite movies related to whatever topic we're doing? So in the case of coming-of-age films... We have some people like James Rodriguez, friend of uh, both ours and Rafe's show, who says, uh, Bess, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, which is heartfelt, humorous, and touching. The Florida Project uh, definitely balances childlike innocence with darker realities. Girlhood details touching friendships with a poor Paris suburb. Uh, the scene dancing to Rihanna is masterful. And How Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse balances so much in an amazing way still astounds me. For worst, uh, me, Earl, and the dying girl, forced quirkiness plus dickhead lead equals cinematic irritation, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, guy's a fucking tool. And Christian Alvarez says, uh, my personal favorite coming-of-age movies are American Graffiti, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Way Way Back, uh, My Girl, and Stand By Me. I'd also be remiss not to leave out uh, John Hughes because of The Breakfast Club in particular. Uh, worst would include Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, Wide Awake, and especially The Toy. Uh, Ryan Quarterman says, I would love to throw some love to It's Kind of a Funny Story, which I just feel in general has been very overlooked, but is really deserving of a reappraisal. Uh, Brian King says, The recent Love and Monsters is terrific, with an underrated lead, Dylan O'Brien, really giving to show off his stuff. Uh, I mentioned the anime film A Silent Voice, which also fits the coming-of-age mold. Um, a Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse is terrible and morally reprehensible, although it gives me loads of nostalgia for my own stint as a scout. Uh, Cameron Castellano says Super Bad is the best coming of age movie. Very gnarly. And Oliver Sloan says for best, uh, Last American Virgin, My Bodyguard, Better Off Dead, Some Kind of Wonderful, Cooley High, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Breakfast Club, Three O'Clock High, Lucas, Risky Business, and To Sir with Love. So a lot of titles mentioned there. Uh, guys, we generally agree with what was said. Yeah, for the most part. I, I mean, 
you know, there, there's some in there, obviously, that I haven't seen. I haven't seen every single coming-of-age story. I don't agree that Superbad is the best of all time. Uh, <laughs> and I also, I, 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 maybe it's nostalgia speaking, I always loved and probably still do Ferris Bueller. Uh, even though I cannot stand Matthew Broderick. Which is fascinating for... <laughs> I know, I know. And also Jeffrey Jones and his problems. Uh, yikes. Yeah. But, uh, you know, yeah, I, I, I agree with a lot of those. I think there's a lot that weren't mentioned that are pretty fantastic. You know, if you want me to go into it a little bit, we did one on our show previously, City of God. Mm-hmm. I think is a wonderful coming-of-age story. Really, really liked A Bronx Tale. I like Ginger Snaps, Goodwill Hunting, even The Karate Kid. You know, there, there's even though those aren't fantastic, but The Karate Kid is also probably nostalgia at this point. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot that are out there that are just absolutely phenomenal. And then there's a lot that are pure garbage. Looking at, at what was said, you know, I mean, I, I love that James Rodriguez lists a bunch of movies that I have not seen other than like two of them, which is, you know, Ferris Bueller and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. So it's like I just, I just I've gotten in the habit of just starting to follow Jane James comments and put those down because that's what I need to watch. Um, I definitely get behind the idea of throwing some love to it's kind of a funny story. Uh, that film was underappreciated when it came out and has faded. And it really is a great film. And I guess I'll follow Adam's formula there and kind of some of my own favorites. Uh, Stand By Me, you guys were making a lot of comments about at the top of the show. One of my all-time favorites, Dead Poet Society, is something that I used to show every year to some of my students uh, when we would get to that part of the year where we were looking at coming-of-age stories. But probably one of my absolute favorite – well, and Boy, Taika Waititi's Boy, I think is better than Wilder People, but – it's close, but probably the one that I, I really have loved the most in more recent years is um, Beasts of the Southern Wild, which is uh, just an incredible film. You got to stick with it, though. I remember the first time I watched it, I got about halfway through it going, why was this nominated for Oscars? And then I got the rest of the way through it and went, oh, this is a brilliant movie. That is a very interesting choice for sure. And that was one that's definitely gotten forgotten uh, since it came out. I mean, I, I especially agree with like in terms of ones that James mentioned, um, I love Perks of Being a Wallflower. And I think that one's kind of gotten a bit more sort of cult attention of sorts. Uh, but I think that's an incredible, like, perfectly done coming-of-age story with a lot of interesting appearances, too. Like, both Melanie Linsky and Tom Savini play, like, pivotal adult characters, which is really hmm. interesting. Uh, he plays, like, the woodshop teacher, which is kind of perfect for Savini. Is, is, is Percy being a wildflower the one with Ezra Miller? Yes. Okay. Then, yeah, yeah, that's a pretty good one. Yeah, and Emma Watson as well. But also the Florida Project, which I, that this might be just like living in Florida, but it's like the most accurate depiction of Kissimmee I've ever seen. Like I was talking with a friend who also grew up in Florida who talked about just like, yeah, it's like a VR experience of what Kissimmee is, which is if you don't know, the town right outside of Orlando, where if you're driving by Disneyland, you see like all the like fucking like, here's a wizard shop where we sell off-brand Disney merchandise and all this other shit. And there's a lot of dilapidated housing and stuff. It is like a stunningly accurate depiction of like living in that particular area. That one's been on my list for a long time to see, and I just need to sit down and watch it. Oh, it's such a tremendous movie. And I even really like the ending, which a lot of people have some issues with. And it was sort of like the famous thing about the movie that involves them kind of like secretly shooting in Disney World. Um, but I think you do an incredible job with that ending that I really, really love. And I'll say even like Ferris Bueller was mentioned and Breakfast Club was mentioned. I like both of those. But I'll have the hot take of like, I don't think most of John Hughes's like coming of age movies hold up that well. Like I'm no. not, not a 16 Candles fan at all. And even Pretty in Pink also I think is 
quite dated. Some Kind of Wonderful is interesting. I would say that's probably one of the more interesting of those. I don't think it's enough credit for what it is. Um, but yeah, I think he sort of worked a lot better with stuff like a Plane, Strains, and Automobiles or even writing stuff like the Vacation movies and such. Um, those hold up a little bit better, honestly. Um, and you know, I will also second James in terms of me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. I loathe. And that was one that so many people loved at the time. It's this, like, quirky indie movie about a kid who makes, like, basically almost sweeted, like, Be Kind Rewind versions of, like, Criterion-style movies. And it's all about him falling in love with this girl who gets cancer. And it's so manipulative and so shitty. I I really was, like, baffled. Like, people like this bullshit? <laughs> it's fucking <laughs> awful. It's everything that I think people hate about sort of, like, twee movies that were coming out around that time. And you know what, honestly, I will say, I was watching, interestingly enough, kind of influenced by Cameron's comment. I rewatched Superbad for the first time in a while. And that was a movie when I was younger I loved tremendously. Revisiting it now, it's, I think, still fun. Uh, I still think there's some stuff that doesn't hold up, like the police stuff is interesting to watch now in 2020. <laughs> uh, we're just like, let's have fun with like Bill Hader and Seth Rogen being horrible but irresponsible cops. That's fun, right? Sure. But the stuff with like Jonah Hill and Michael Sarah really works. And also, like right before the show, I rewatched Juno for the first time since around like 2008 or so. I think that one holds up incredibly well to me. Really? Okay. I haven't seen that one in a long time. Like, I loved it when I first saw it. Yeah, people always kind of reference like the honest to blog home skillet stuff that's like mostly in like the first 10 minutes of the movie. And it's aggressive. I agree. That's not the movie's highlight whatsoever. But I love how that movie peels back the layers and realizing, like, oh, this is just, like, a defense mechanism for this girl who doesn't know who she is. And I think does such an incredible job, like, really developing her into a person who goes through so much shit over the course of that pregnancy. And Ellen Page does not, I think she was nominated at the time, but I think she deserves yes. so much more credit for, like, how nuanced that performance is. Oh, absolutely, dude. I absolutely fell in love with her because of that movie. Like, she's so... <laughs> good in that movie and you feel for that character so so much uh i absolutely agree i think juno's fantastic like i said i haven't seen it in a while I'd, I'd like to watch it again and, and and more to your super bad comment at least the cops in that are fucking like drinking beers with a kid and, and stuff like that i know it's irresponsible and terrible but at least they're not like out you know doing violent things and things like that so i mean well i guess they kind of are they're I, guns, yeah they're, they're like shooting guns irresponsibly and like pinning shit yeah, and like being incredibly you know irresp- like no it's it's not as like overt necessarily but it feels like kind of like are we making this like fun in this respect where it's like oh they're mclovin's buddies so it's like it doesn't feel as bad when other people are worse it just feels i, don't know, I think yeah, that I stuff ages that. really poorly but like the stuff with jonah hill and michael sarah they're still so perfect as like a friend duo what about book of henry <laughs> oh. oh that's one that's one for not the good pile or the bad pile that's the greatest pile as we've discussed yeah. previously on the show the best of cinema in general, say, not just coming of age I was, say, I was gonna say it's the best <laughs> it's the the best it was the best true true uh, but thank you all for all those uh you know, suggestions that you left, definitely a bunch to, especially if you haven't seen a lot of those, to kind of peruse around on streaming services and stuff. But we also want to thank some other people, like Chris Oliver, for the intro and outro music used on our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. And thanks to Emily Scarter for the art that we use on the show. And uh, thanks, of course, to our Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash dedvpod where you all uh, get stuff like bonus podcasts every month and get to vote on either topics that we do or even certain movies that we cover. Um, and right now, as you're listening to this, you'll be able to listen to our top 10 
list bonus episode about holiday films, which we'll be recording soon. Very curious to hear Adam's list, and I'm sure he's curious to hear mine, obviously, for sure. I can imagine yours, Thomas's. I can't imagine Adam's. That's um, I'm glad to be a Patreon, and uh, exactly for content like that. So, a lot of movies that start off with the words that Debbie does. <laughs> just, just so we're clear. Debbie does Christmas. Um, Debbie for sure. does Christmas. Debbie does Hanukkah. Debbie does Krampus. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as you mentioned, Rafe, you are a proud patron for just one dollar a month, and we want to thank, of course, you for not just doing that every month, but also being a part of this particular episode. Always fun having you on. And uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you? Sure. Uh, I do a weekly podcast called Have Not Seen This, where guests come on and talk about movies that they're a little surprised with that other people have not seen. Um, we've covered a wide gambit of movies in the year that it's been out. Uh, and uh, just recently, I opened the doors to have guests come back on to talk about more movies if they want to. Uh, and Thomas will be featured in an upcoming episode talking about a Muppet movie, which yet again really surprised me. His first appearance was Walk Hard and then a Muppet movie. And just I, I think I know Thomas as a film lover. And then he always surprises me with his picks. Uh, Adam came on. We had a great conversation about Dark City. And uh, we'll be appearing in an upcoming episode with one of the picks that he originally had for this show. We've already recorded our Muppets uh, episode, and it was very fun. And, uh, you know, at some point you'll record with Adam, I'm sure, with whatever weird movie he picked <laughs> that no one remembers. His Another Deuce is Wild, I'm sure. But yeah, you can find it. Have not seen this on any major podcatcher. Uh, have not seen this on Twitter and have not seen this podcast on Facebook. Yeah, it's a fun show. Even as someone who's been on the show, it's also just a fun listen. Whenever you get a great guest, some of which have been on our show previously. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yes. And uh, you can find us doing our own Rinky Dink operation on uh, the socials like Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. Um, and I, you can also send us feedback in a longer written form if you're not on those socials to our email, doubleedgedoublebill at gbl.com. And uh, you can find me on my own individual social stuff on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at, as a, at not the who's Tommy. And I also do some writing at marianithomas.wordpress.com for all sorts of uh, reviews and lists and other things that uh, I just love writing down. Like haikus. I don't do haikus, <laughs> though. I don't. You, just not, you, you realize just we not. never explained the haiku connection. <laughs> <laughs> we, we referenced it was the best. <laughs> and I did at the very beginning. I said I write haikus when I get upset. Um, no, uh, yeah, you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam or Adam. Uh, that's A-T-O-M underscore or underscore A-D-A-M. Uh, I don't do much on the Twitter, but just share stuff for the show. But uh, if you want me to share some of the things from any of your respective shows, I'm more than happy to do so. And Instagram is mostly just pictures of paintings and my daughter. But if you want to follow me on either, please do. Don't sell yourself short. On Twitter, you also post random things in the middle of the night. Like if you're a 2 a.m. Twitterer, Adam's your guy. <laughs> I have definitely that. And for more of our uh, silly back and forth here, you can uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or other podcatchers out there. And uh, if you're listening on the ESO Network, why not listen to some of the other great shows that are in that main feed? Or you can even listen to some of our archives for episodes we did way before we ever joined ESO, like a solid 60 to 70 episodes or so that we didn't do before we joined there. And if nothing else, if you can't be a patron, if you can't, you know, support us, through uh, other means like that. If you could just rate, review, or simply share the show that helps us out, that gives us more visibility out there in the ether. 
yeah, Rafe's done it. Why the fuck haven't anybody else? Yeah. Pieces of shit. <laughs> he ain't no Fairweather fan. <laughs> he puts in the legwork, you sons of bitches. <laughs> For sure. As he'll be doing with the ending of our show, where, as I mentioned a bit ago, we do our picking at the end of every episode, where, in this case, Adam has uh, two good picks, I have two bad picks, and we uh, do our picking for the next week's episode. And uh, this next week, we're doing a topic we've kind of, like, gone on and off putting on the list before, but we're definitely doing it now. We are devoting an episode to the uh, several Academy Award-nominated Meryl Streep. You might have heard of her. She's done some things. Was she you know, in Deuces Wild? Rafe, she's from the talkies, so you, you wouldn't know. <laughs> um, if you talk American actress, you know, that she's probably the first one that pops into most people's heads, at least as far as modern day. Uh, Meryl Streep's kind of a big deal. And even despite, obviously, your your, your hints and your jokes and such, Rafe, you're also obviously a fan, I'm sure, to some extent, Streep. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And we'll be doing um, our episode next week where, interestingly, uh, usually we would pick number between 1 and 10 to get a good and bad feature at the end of this episode. Um, either us or a guest like Rafe will be doing for at least one of our picks. But he ended up at least uh, contributing to the Patreon poll. Uh, where we asked all of you for Between Adam's Two Good Choices, and uh, it was between Julie and Julia, or the ultimate decision, which was Death Becomes Her, which I'm very excited to talk about, one that I think is underrated in her filmography. I'm not saying which way I voted, but I won. (laughs) As as Rafe tends to do, obviously, with the Patreon polls. But, Rafe, for my two bad choices, go ahead and pick a number between one and ten. Uh, let's go with the deuce. The deuce. How appropriate, yes. Well, at number four, I had a movie that I have not seen, but despite her getting a lot of attention for it, um, including winning her third Oscar for it, um, a lot of people have said that The Iron Lady isn't her best hour. Son of a bitch! Son of a bitch! <laughs> I was like, if it's the fucking Margaret Thatcher movie, I'm gonna jump out the window. <laughs> well, there it is. <laughs> There's the oh, window. At <laughs> no, could you make a more boring fucking movie to have well, to watch? Well, funny you should mention that because over at number oh. seven, I had Lions for Lambs, which I've also heard is similarly kind of boring. Mm. Oh. You got off. You got off lucky, Adam. <laughs> I don't know. I think either way. To be fair, we picked, we got Death Becomes Her, which is one of her weirder choices out there. We had to do a bad Oscar Beatty movie. <laughs> That's true. I was honestly expecting that Ricky and the Flash movie, so I'll, I'll uh... Honestly, I'll say, I like that movie. I think a lot of people hate on that movie. I think that movie's quite enjoyable. I enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, of course, dude. You guys fucking get a horse and go live in the mountains somewhere. Don't bother anybody. <laughs> well, you know what? We'll go ahead and do that. Rafe and I will go off to the mountains. We'll have a great coming of age story, and you can go. I don't know. Uh, just stick over in Deuces Wild with like Stephen Dorff and all his fucking fifties greasers. That's your ultimate dream. Yeah, coming's gonna be spelled with a U in your guy's story. Well, on that lovely note, I think it's time to say good night, everybody. <laughs> Bye, guys.
has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.